Today we are continuing on in a series called Identity. And so for, for today and for the next several weeks, we're talking about who we are as a church community, who we aim to be here in Nazareth, and within that, also talking about who we get to be as individuals, uh, as children of God, as people loved by God, and we're going to talk about that. So one of the things I talked about last week, and I already mentioned earlier, is this idea of simply Jesus, that our identity as a church, our aim is to be uh, only pointing to Jesus, like John the Baptist did, and not to ourselves as the answer, not to any, you know, political party or any power or any wealth or any events or programs, but to point to Jesus as the hope of the world and water for dry souls. And, and today, what I want to talk about is the gospel. And if you are here for any amount of time or you hang around our community for even just a little while, you'll hear us talking about the gospel. We'll say things like there's freedom in the gospel. We'll say there's hope in the gospel. We'll say we need to gospel one another in community groups. And so it's, it's a noun, it's an adjective, it's a verb, we use it all the time, and really it, it is the core of who we are. It's the core of who we want to be as individuals and as a church community. So much so that it is the, the gospel is the beginning of our kind of identity statement. We say we want to be a gospel-centered community or family here in Nazareth. We want to be gospel-centered. So what I want to do is sort of define over the next two weeks, probably, what is the gospel? Now, if you know uh, Scripture at all, if you know the New Testament, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, was written in, the majority of it was written in the Greek language, in ancient Greek. And the New Testament authors chose this, this was their native tongue, and so they wrote these books in Greek. And they, they used this word gospel, which in Greek is evangelion. You can hear the word evangelist in there. It's, it's evangelion. It means good news. And, and this was a word that, that the New Testament authors sort of co-opted from the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. See, the Romans would use this word uh, gospel or good news to announce good news when they had won a victory, when they had won a battle. They would send a herald back to the towns and back to the cities to proclaim the gospel this evangelist would come and proclaim the good news that Rome had won, that they had won this victory. And so the New Testament authors took this term gospel and they started using it to talk about the victory of God, to talk about the victory of God primarily through the person, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so they used this to announce the good news so that you know that they're called the gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the gospels because they're the good news about Jesus. And so what I want to talk about is the importance of the gospel, all right, and the importance of this good news, to, so that we understand that when we are community, we are, we are talking about uh, living in this, grasping this, trying to believe more and more, giving each other this good news about God's love for all of his creation and for you and for me. So why do we need good news? Right? Well, I would say that we need good news because there's also bad news. All right, now, I am not a, a doom and gloom person. I don't fear the world like a lot of churches do. I'm not like, oh, the world is just, it's all terrible. I think there's plenty of great things, good things, good news happening in the world. When I look around, like, I can see healthy marriages. I see babies being born into families. I see, you know, good weather. I see, like, I love the fall. I love football season. I know you guys love pumpkin spice latte. Like, life is good right now in the fall, right? Like, we can look around and see organizations doing great things around the world with, with children and with youth. We see people cleaning up the environment. Like, there's good things happening. So I'm not at all saying, oh my gosh, the world's all terrible. But 
let's be honest, we don't need to look very far, right, to see that there's also bad news. All right, so we can be drinking our pumpkin spice latte and enjoying our, our, our day, but also when we see the news, we know that there are children dying of dirty water in, in developing nations. We can see that there are corporations who are stealing from their people. We can see politicians that are corrupt and even clergy in this area with some of the terrible things that have happened. Right? Like we can look around and see that there's also bad news. And so we don't deny that, and we don't just also say that's the only thing, but we can look around and see that there is... There's bad things happening, and there's something in our gut that says it's not supposed to be like this, right? We can look and say, this shouldn't be like this. This should be better than this. And what happens in our world today and for all of history is that people will start trying to come up with good news. They'll start trying to generate ways to make good things happen. Then they'll try to come up with good ideas and, and policies and systems to put in place to make good things happen in the world. And so I want to just briefly talk about a couple of those to kind of keep them in the back of our mind. The first thing, uh, what I would say is there's, there's, a, there's a, uh, a government approach or a political approach to try to make good things happen, to come up with an answer for the bad things and come up with a good thing. Now, look. I talk about politicians and politics and government a lot. I'm not anti-government. I'm, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not anti-politics. Like, look, I, I think some people are called into making policy, and it's great. But what happens, if you pay attention to the news, what we see happens in political environment, in the government, we see that everything is, is uh, based on our party is good, your party is bad. You're actually the bad news. Ours is the good news. Yours is the problem. We, we come up with legislation that in one state says, uh, you know, drunk driving is wrong, but we're going to legalize pot in this state. Like, these things don't line up, I don't think at least, or you know, constantly demonizing one another, saying, well, he's bad, I'm good. We see a, a politician will say, I'm all about campaign finance reform, yet then we find out that they're using the company Jet to fly to Italy, right? Like, it doesn't line up. In my mind, there's, there's a lot of bad news to be found there. There's, it isn't a system, I believe, that provides good news. Or I would say that we, we try to handle uh, or develop good news in what I would call the self-help model. All right. This is the, 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 the we try to attempt to get good news by self-helping. We we need to just to think positive, and everything will be okay. If I just think positively, this cancer that I have maybe won't seem as big a deal. I can think my way out of it. Or or if I just think happy thoughts about life, then then I can get over the pain of my mom or my dad abandoning me. Right. And we try to think our way out of things. If we just think happy thoughts, we can float through life, and everything will be okay. I just don't think. It works. I'm a bit of a pragmatist, and I just don't think that that really provides peace, that really provides rest, like we talked about last week. I think it ends up in being a whole lot of emptiness in the end. Or what about ignorance, right? The, the, the system of what I would call ignorance, trying to ignore what's happening around us and just try to make a good life for ourselves through our hard work. We bury ourselves in, in our work, in our kids, in our family, in our hobbies, in, in our eating and drinking. We try to make a good life for ourselves and just get while the getting is good and, and forget that the rest of the world is out there and forget that we are surrounded by bad news. And I mean, again, I just don't know that it really works. I think at the end of the day, at some point, you run smack into bad news and then there's not an answer for it. And finally, something that you will hear me talk about regularly, and, and probably if you come to our community groups or whatever, you'll hear us talk about it, that there's this idea, uh, something we call religion, or probably a better term for it would be moralism, or, or legalism even. And, and moralism and religion try to provide good news, but, but they do it by saying, there's a problem, and it's you. 
You're the problem. If you would just shape up, the world wouldn't be like this anymore. If you would just try harder, work harder, read your Bibles more, memorize things, go to church more often, give more, everything would be better. Then, then the world would be full of good news. The bad news is, is your fault. You should get your acts together. And it's, you know, don't be full of greed. Don't lust. Don't lose your temper with your kids or your boss. Don't curse. Don't get drunk. Don't, 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 don't do this. Don't do that. It's this, this system of, of moralism or legalism. And in my mind, it ends up with a group of people who are judgmental of everyone else and exhausted themselves because they can't even meet their own standards. And so, Again, to me, that's bad news. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. So if you ever hear me talk about religion, that's what I'm talking about. Friends, here's kind of two bedrock truths, two things to kind of rest on. It's not just the world around us that is in trouble. It's not just the world around us that is full of bad news. It's actually a lot closer to home. Here's what I mean. It's easy to point a finger at a corporation that's stealing money from its employees' retirement plans and say, that's wrong. That is evil. That shouldn't be happening, right? Like, we would look at that and say, that's not okay. But what drove that corporation to do that? What drove that CFO or that CEO to do that? Greed, right? Have you ever had greed in your heart? Have you ever wished you had just a little bit more Have you ever told a little bit of a white lie so maybe you could get ahead just a little bit? Do you see the root there is greed in both cases? And so whether it's a corporation or us, it's it's kind of there inside of us. What about um, the Me Too movement right now that that is sweeping America? And rightly so, because abusive men and women should never be tolerated and it should be called out. But as easy as it is to point a finger at Harvey Weinstein and say, he's an evil man, he shouldn't do that, which he shouldn't, what drove him to that behavior? Lust, right? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever lust for someone other than than your spouse? I have. So do you see it's in both cases, it's the root is there inside of all of us. What about something like terrorism, right? Easy to look at terrorism and say you you shouldn't be able to go into a building and blow it up because you hate the people that live there. But what drove that? Hate, bias, racism. Have you ever had that in your heart? Have you ever had that, that, that racism or that bias or the hatred creep up inside of you? I have. You ever wished ill of a coworker because you just couldn't stand them and they got a bad review? You took a little bit of joy in that when that happened? Do you see it at the root? It's inside of all of us. And that's why I say it's easy to look at the problem out there and say, there's the problem. It needs to be fixed. But when we really get introspective, we find out that it's inside of all of us. Friends, we need good news because here's the bad news. The evil and the wrong and, the, and the, the wrongdoing that we see out in the world is so easy to point out. It's inside of all of us. And it's called sin. And, and before you just close your ears and your hearts to me, remember, I'm not a moralist. I, I, I'm not a legalist. But I think we need to point out that there is such a thing as sin. And it is inside of all of us. And here's the thing, though. I think... I think all of us, Tim Keller says this, he's, a, he's another pastor who's very famous and more intelligent than, than me, he says, there is such a thing as sin, and, and we are sinful, and we are more sinful than we would ever dare to admit or want to admit to the world around us, but we are more loved than we realize by God. 
That's the gospel, friends, is that we are more sinful than we care to admit, but we are more loved than, and pursued by God than we would ever realize. And when we, when we come to terms with that, when we start to realize who we are and who God is and who he says we are and who he says he is, when we come to terms with that, that's not just good news, it becomes great news. It becomes transformative for us and for the world around us. That's the first kind of bedrock truth, in my mind, of the gospel. That we are, in fact, sinful, jacked-up people. But we are more loved by God than we could ever realize. The second is this. Sin is not just an issue of behavior. Okay, moralists and, and religious legalist types would like to make sin just a matter of behavior. Okay, but sin is not just a behavioral issue. It's, it's about belief. To me, sinful behavior is actually rooted in unbelief or wrong beliefs, and it stems from there. Because what we believe deep down in our depths will ultimately come out in our behavior. What we believe about ourselves, the world, God, other people, will start to come out in our behavior. So here's what I mean by this. I'm going to give you just a real-life example from last week. So um, I am what's called a church planter. Okay, we are planting a new church. We're trying to grow a church community here in Nazareth. And, and so the circle, one of the circles that I run in is a network of other church planters. And so after last Sunday, they had all been praying for us that our launch would go well and that lots of people would be here and the gospel would be preached. And, and so when I came home, I had text messages. And on Monday, I had phone calls from people saying, how did it go? How was it? And then the question comes, how many people were there? How many people were there? Let me tell you something. This is where behavior, behavior comes from belief, right? In that moment, my ego says, inflate the number. <laughs> right? Easily 90 people. <laughs> right? Like This goes through my head because what I'm starting to believe in that moment is my self-worth is based on what this other church planter thinks of me. So what I believe starts to influence my behavior. And so I have to be honest in that moment and say, I, honestly, I didn't even really have a number. I was like, I think it was like 86, right? But I could have just said, it was 90-ish, you know, but I need to believe who I am in God, not in who this other person is or says I am and get myself worth in them. So all I'm trying to draw is an example of how behavior stems from our belief, who we believe that we are and who we are in God. So that's kind of the, the, the second issue here. And so I want to uh, share something from Scripture that kind of highlights this, and it's sort of the, the, the first story where we see humanity doing something like this, where behavior comes from belief. If you have a Bible, you can look at Genesis 1. If you don't, there's a couple in the back there. Honestly, you can take them. If you need a Bible, grab them. If not, put it on your phone. I would encourage you this week to read through um, Genesis 1 to 12. All right, 12 chapters, maybe read chapter 2 a day, and look at Genesis 1 to 12. It's kind of what we're going to cover today, and then it's going to introduce where we go next week as well. But this is a narrative that you're familiar with. Even if you haven't grown up in church, whatever, you know the narrative, probably, of, of God creating everything. In the beginning of Genesis 1, we see God create everything out of nothing, simply by speaking. It's an incredible picture that if you've grown up in the church, you've gotten used to hearing it. You don't even think about it much anymore. But, but just process this with me. There is nothing, and God says, let there be light. And let there be darkness, and phew, it happens, and it comes into existence. He says, let there be sun and moon and stars, and everything happens. He says, let there be, let there be land and, and water that separates it, and it happens. Let there be animals that are walking around on the earth. Let there be fish swimming in the sea. Let there be birds flying in the air. Let there be seed-bearing plants and fruit and trees growing. 
It's, and it all just happens because he speaks it. It comes out of nothing. And after all of it, what does God say? It's good. It's good. He looks at it and he takes pleasure in it. He is pleased with his creation and he takes joy in it. But then we get, we get this account. If you want to look in your Bibles, uh, Genesis 1, look at Genesis 1, verse 26. So God has made all these things out and about, right? And then in verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I, I love that the author includes that there, male and female, he created them in God's image. Like it's men and women reflect something in who they are of God's image. Both sexes reflect something about God's character, his creativity in who they are. All right, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every plant, every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Do you hear, do you hear it there? What's happening? God creates all these things for, for five days. Sun, moon, stars, or, you know, land, water. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates man and woman is in his image. And then he says, it's very good. It's very good. There's this emphatic pleasure that he takes in seeing humanity that looks like him that reflects him, that are his image bearers to the world around them. This is like a, you know, a proud papa, a proud mom who looks at their newborn and says, that is amazing. I take pleasure in this. This gives me great joy. Friends, here's something you need to know about our identity as a church and our identity as individuals in the world is that we believe that God loves his creation. You won't find that, I don't believe, in every church. You'll actually find the opposite, that God hates what he's created, and it's a big mess. And I don't believe that. I believe that God created something, and he loves it, and he is for it, that, that he loves animals and plants, and he loves, he loves the beauty of a sunset. He loves the Grand Canyon. He loves good coffee. He loves food and drink. When we read the end of this, the story in Scripture, we see that there's a big feast and a, you know, a gathering around food. He loves these things. He loves what he has made, and he loves you, and he loves me. He looks at us, and he sees his image, and he says, that is good. That is very good, and I love it, and I am for it. That he made us on purpose. He made you on purpose, and he wants your good. So what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is this God loves his creation. He is happy with what he has done. But if you know this story, and you were listening, you know that God also provides for them everything they need to eat except for one tree, if you remember. He says, don't eat from this one tree. Tree. Now, we could, we could get into a discussion about that, but it would take three years, and we don't have time for everything that's wrapped up in that. I would love to get coffee you wanna, if you want to have a philosophical conversation about that. But the point being, God said, don't eat from this one thing. And what happens, what happens when you tell people, like, don't look at something? They want to look at it. You tell a kid, don't do this, and they're like, but I just might. Like, like, it's just innate in humanity to want to do something that God has told us not to. And I think what it comes down to actually is 
disbelief on Adam and Eve's part. Because God said, don't do this. Don't do this or you will surely die. And they despise this warning from God. They put it aside and they say, actually, we're going to do that. And in so doing, our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, they, they usher in sin. They usher in this brokenness. They usher in bad news into the world. This bad news that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation and is inherent in all of us. Because I honestly believe that we all would pick from the tree if given the opportunity. We all would. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, we're all unrighteous. Like, we all would do that. You see, it's, it's insidious. It's inside of all of us. I think ultimately what it comes down to is that before they even ate of the fruit of that tree, sin was creeping in in their hearts because they didn't believe God. You see, this disbelief in what God had told them, whether they didn't believe his his warning or they didn't believe that they had gotten enough from him, they didn't believe it, and it led to the behavior, the sin of eating of this fruit. They didn't believe that they would die. They didn't believe that God was providing enough for them. And so sin enters the world. And something cataclysmic happens. Something cataclysmic happens to the universe, and we see that a world that once was good and producing things for them ends up becoming a place of toil and hardship to farm, full of thorns. I believe that childbearing that was supposed to be joyful ends up being full of pain, God says, and it's full of strife between husbands and wives and children. We see Cain kill Abel and murder and envy come into the scene. Something cataclysmic happens because of sin, but all because they didn't trust God. They didn't believe who God said they were and what God had promised them. And so if you read on in the account of Adam and Eve, something incredible, in my mind at least, something incredible happens. Two things happen. Despite shunning God's authority and not believing who God says he was, despite bringing in this cataclysmic consequence into the world, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve, and he makes a promise to us. He says, Eve, from your offspring, from your lineage, I will crush the evil one. So if you remember in this story, it was, call it the serpent, devil, Satan, whatever you want to say, this enemy of God got them to believe something wrong about God. He's the enemy of God. He's the father of all lies, Scripture says. And God says in this promise to Eve, he says, I will bring one out of your lineage who will crush him. I will bring one who will crush his head. He might, this enemy might bruise his heel, but he will crush your enemy. It's this beautiful promise, despite the fact that they've not believed God and they've sinned. And then this other thing happens. And this is an idea that will carry through the rest of Scripture. If you remember, they, they realize when they eat from this tree that they're naked. They suddenly look at each other and like, huh, like, okay, okay, we, we know too much now. We've seen too much. And so they cover themselves with leaves of some sort. If you've ever been in the Middle East, they have these ginormous fig leaves. They cover themselves with these And God comes to them, he pursues them, and he says, or he covers them with a sacrificed animal. He doesn't use the word sacrificed, but it gave up its life for this, right? He takes animal skins and he covers them. And he gives them protection, better than the fig leaves they were trying to provide for themselves. And he gives them these hides of these animals. And despite the rebellion, he moves towards them to care for them. And he uses a killed animal to cover them and protect them. Friends, do you see what's happening in this story? Is it, you know, part of our identity as in a church and as individuals is that of a people who are pursued by God, cared for by God despite our rebellion, 
cherished by him because we're his creation and we're made in his image. That he loves us and he is for us. And that he will deal with the enemy who tries to lead us into death. And as if, as if to show that humanity wasn't already bad enough, when you read the next nine chapters of Genesis, it gets crazy. Like, it's total chaos. People are killing each other. There's all kinds of, like, uh, perverted sexuality. People are worshiping idols. They're destroying creation. At the Tower of Babel, you've heard of this, they end up making this giant tower up to heaven. And they're like, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And, and God disperses them across the earth and says, no, 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 it's my name that's to be worshiped, not yours. But if you remember the story, God goes on from there and he picks a new family. Where Adam and Eve had chosen to not believe God, God comes to a new family, to a man named Abram and a man named Sarah, to a woman named Sarah, and he says, you're going to be my new family. What I wanted to do with creation, I'm now going to do through you. And he gives them this, this promise, and he says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make a new people out of you. I'm going to give you a land to live in, a good land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people. And he makes this great offering to this new, kind of a new Adam and a new Eve, and he says, I'm going to do this new thing through you. And what you see is that he's preserving the lineage from Eve. He's preserving this lineage that eventually one will come who will destroy the enemy of God. And he makes this promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a new land, I'm going to give you a a children, so many children that you're going to become a new nation. And Abraham's like, "Uh, hold up, I and my wife are very old and we can't have kids. It hasn't worked up to this point, and God says, I'm going to do it. I promise you, I'm going to make you a new nation, and I'm going to lead you into this new land. And Abram's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know if this is going to happen. How do I know that you're going to lead us into this land? I'm just a guy, like there's all these enemies here. What, what are you going to do? How are you going to, how are you going to do that? And in Genesis 15, there's this, this covenant starts to come into picture. This promise starts to come in from God about how he's going to redeem humanity. Listen to this. In, in Genesis 15, Nine. Abram's just asked God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to bring me into this land? And God says this, bring me a heifer, or a cow, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half because they were too small to do that. Uh, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. What the heck is happening here? Okay, In these days, when someone would make a promise to one another, when they'd make a covenant with one another, there would be a blood covenant that would happen. Sort of like when you go to the the table and you're signing your papers for your real estate, it's like, I get a paper, you get a paper. In these days, it was like, half an animal, half an animal. Like, this is what they would do. And what would happen is they would walk down through the middle of it. And it was symbolic of the promise they were making to each other. They would say, if I don't uphold my side of the bargain, let it be to me what's happened to to these animals. You see, there was a seriousness to it. There was a, there was a bit of um, you know, like a intensity to it. So God says, I'm making this promise to you just like anyone else would make. Go get the animals, sacrifice them, cut them in half, and we'll walk down through them together. This is how serious I am about this promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to make a new humanity through you. So listen to what happens in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. He's supposed to be taking part in this covenant walk. He falls asleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, I don't know if that's just the presence of God that was just so overwhelming to him, or it was nighttime and he was tired, but he falls asleep. And the Lord says to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. This is the story of 
the slaves in Egypt, which we'll talk a little bit about next week. I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Whole other story, don't worry about that. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates. Friends, do you hear what's happening in there? God is saying, let's make this covenant together. Let's walk down through there. And Abram falls asleep. Whether it's the presence of God, I don't know. But he's asleep, and God walks through the covenant alone. He is the blazing, he is the smoking fire pot, the blazing torch. He walks down the middle of these sacrificed animals alone. And he says, I will make this covenant to you, even though I know that you can't uphold it. I am for you, and I want to see humanity redeemed, and I love it, and I will walk through it, even though you're asleep at the wheel. I will go through on your behalf. God knew that Abraham couldn't do it. He knew that he couldn't do it. But if you read scripture, you know, over and over again, it says what? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. He just believed that God was for him and God was for this new nation he was making and he knew that God would come through on his promises. Friends, our identity as a church is this, to admit that there is bad news and that we're a part of it, that we're sinners. But, but rather than rely on politics to fix it or self-help or religious moralism or legalism or our own hard work, we trust that God walks through the covenant on our behalf. That God walks through and says, I will redeem humanity. I am the good news. Believe in me. Not in your own hard work, but believe in me. Why does this matter today? Here's what I think. God, I believe, is not in heaven or glory or wherever you want to imagine God to be. God is not in that place looking down at humanity saying, I can't stand you. Get your acts together. Fix yourselves up. Would you just do more and be more and do better? If only you would get your acts together, then life would be good. It's just not the narrative that we see in Scripture. What we see is a God who pursues humanity, who loves humanity, who says, you are made in my image, and I will restart creation with Noah, who messes things up, and I will restart creation with with Abraham, who messes things up. And I will restart creation with the kings and David, and he messes it up. And I will restart it with the prophets. And it just goes on and on. But continually, God says, I will fulfill the covenant. I will fulfill my side of the covenant. I am for you. I am for you. I love you. I am for you. And here's what this means for me, at least. It means that when I know this about the God of the universe who speaks everything into being, when I know that he loves me and he is for me, I don't really care what anyone thinks of me anymore. Because I know what God thinks of me. You see how the belief in that starts to lead to a behavior. When we know that God has already proved his love to humanity over and over and over again. He's done all the proving. I don't need to prove anything anymore. I no longer need to justify myself. And so we see that God is the, the only one to be feared or revered. We don't need to fear other people anymore. Because we see that God again and again and again is the victor. That is the good news, church, that God is the one who wins over and over and over again. Ultimately, we see it in Jesus, which is what primarily we'll talk about next week. Because what we see 
is a God who brings about a covenant of, of a new land, of a new people, of a new family that's, that's birthed. Uh, we see this, this sacrifice. Remember, we had a sacrifice that covers Adam and Eve. We have a sacrifice that, that Abraham falls asleep and God walks through. And ultimately what we see is the sacrifice of Jesus. We see he is the one who fulfills the covenant as the perfect, believing human being. Human being. We see a God that loves us so much that he covers us despite our shame, despite our open rebellion again and again and again. And that he knows that we can't do it on our own. He knows that we do not have the ability within us, but he gives us his spirit to empower us to believe, which then leads to right behavior. So when we go into politics, we do it well. When we go into our jobs, we do it to the glory of God. When we love our families, we lead them because God is empowering us to do it. It's not about us anymore. It's about his glory being revealed through us. Church, that's the gospel. That's the good news, that it's not about us and what we do and our achievement and our behavior and getting everything right. It's about God's love for us and his pursuit of us. And when we start to believe that, it changes everything about us. It transforms us and it transforms the world. That's the kind of church we want to be. And I believe it's, it's our privilege as individuals to get to believe that and walk through that together. Would you pray with me?